Hi everyone, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu. Today, I wanted to relate some of the listener feedback I've been getting. Just wanted to say that I do appreciate all the messages that I have been sent, and I and the conversation that's, that we've been having. In relation to the last episode, that is part four of the Tengu Sermon on the Martial Arts, chapter one, a listener who lives and trains in Japan said, <clears throat> In traditional Japanese culture, sometimes any question is considered impertinent. That being said, the level of detailed explanation I've seen in Ryuha, that is a style or system, would put any stereotypical Westerner to shame. End quote. In his experience, at least with 20th and 21st century instructors, there's a strong element of guiding in the student's discovery process. The closest he's seen from any of his instructors or seniors in any art, be it modern or classic, um, including the old school stereotype, which he comments might have very well not have been a stereotype until one or two generations ago, is for the instructor to say something like this. See if you can guess why my X technique works on you and yours doesn't on me. Tell me what you see, hear, or feel. They let the student try a couple of times, and then, if the student doesn't get it, as is often the case, the instructor will say, When I did X, I turned my wrist a little to the right. Now you try it. Now, I'm not sure what the norm was in Trezanchi's time, but what we can infer from his writing is that instructors were trending toward making the path easier for students who lacked patience. I see this today with teachers who accelerate a student's promotion in an effort to keep that student's attention, interest, or simply because they're afraid the student will leave for a different school that gives out promotions faster. The nice thing about the method this listener has experienced across multiple arts during his years in Japan is that the answer is not simply given freely. The students are given a chance to work it out for themselves and then guided along the path needed to reach the answer rather than the answer itself. I can say personally that while learning Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, my instructors have used a similar process, and that when learning and instructing traditional Jiu-Jitsu, I've used the same. In either, the lessons that have stuck with me are the ones that I've had to think about and soak into my being. During a different conversation with the same listener, we spent some time discussing the problems of translation and context. I personally find it interesting that Chizanshi explicitly stated at the end of the sermon that he put the words of his work in the mouths of Tengu so we don't take his words too seriously. The listener pointed out that this creates an interesting contradiction when one considers that they, that is the Tengu, were supposed to be masters of the martial arts and therefore their words should have carried some weight. He pointed out we're missing some context here. What did people believe about the Tengu in Chizanshi's time? Did his texts come out at some particular point when the Tengu or the martial arts had become popular in a positive or negative way for some reason? All good questions to ask. I'll interject here that one possibility, as noted in the Japanese Wikipedia page for the Tengu sermon, is that it ends in a way calling to mind a popular, for then, Rakugo work called The Tengu's Judgment, whose main narrative device is a circular dream sequence. Maybe it's a bit like a series of books I've seen, and have a minor connection to, props to whoever knows which one to find my name in, that connect philosophical concepts to popular movies. I've seen ones ranging from The Lord of the Rings to Star Wars and Harry Potter. I think it's clear that Chazanshi didn't take the idea of Tengu too seriously, as he explicitly stated in the afterword, and I quote, Nevertheless, I'm afraid that I'm inviting the censure of intelligent people with all these words. Out of necessity, I put this playful discussion into the mouth of a Tengu. How could I consider this to be anything other than a book about myself talking in my sleep? 
end quote. Now, I can't say what readers of his day would have thought, but I think it's clear Chozanshi didn't want to step on any toes, and thought the Tengu a good vehicle to accomplish this. In the end, context is very important, and this, in part, is why this podcast is really only representative of my reading of the text. Nothing more. To use Chozanshi's imagery, I'm just a dreamer commenting on someone else's dream. The listener related a story that I thought demonstrates this really well as to why context is so important when translating. The headmaster of a classical style in Japan was talking about the manji, a left-pointing swastika most often associated with Buddhism. This teacher was saying how important the symbol was to styles in that particular family of arts. Now, this was a written interview uh, with the headmaster, and in this case he said manji, or saru manji. And saru was written in kana, that is, one of the phonetic alphabets used in Japanese. So the listener, who was also the translator of the article, couldn't understand what it meant. Since it was really important to this family of styles, the listener started asking around. The headmaster wasn't immediately available, so he had to make do with senior students, whom he called old-timers, and nobody really knew. They were guessing that maybe he meant monkey, which is also pronounced saru, and that it might have something to do with the idea of the monkey mind. And I'll be honest, this was my first thought too. Another idea was put forth that it was a verb pronounced saru that means to send away, and all kinds of other things. A few days later, uh, the listener here uh, had a chance to ask the headmaster himself, and he said, Oh, that? It means hidali no manji, or left-turning <clears throat> swastika, because back in the day, ru often stood for no, uh, the possessive, and of course, hidali, left, is also read sa, so in essence, it means a counterclockwise spinning swastika. <laughs> so apparently people were reading a bunch of deep, complicated concepts into what was essentially just an old-fashioned abbreviation for a very simple, direct description of the symbol itself. This is a great example of how, out of context and without an understanding of the culture and time period when something was written, it is very easy to fall into the trap of projecting all sorts of our own misunderstandings onto what were supposed to be simple, clear, and direct ideas. I see this particularly when Westerners try to project all sorts of deep esoteric interpretations onto mundane actions and activities in Asian cultures. The lesson here is, of course, that we must be very careful to guard our readings and interpretations of not only old classical texts, but also our own modern teachers. Be vigilant against the dangers of misinterpretation and running far off into the weeds in the process of understanding and applying these teachings. And it is my commitment to you, the listener, that I will be doing the same with all the works that we look at here on Walking with the Tengu. So, I am recording this on the last day of 2018. I want to thank you all personally for listening. Know that I appreciate each and every one of you. I love conversing with you, and I appreciate it when you give me more to think about and research. And, depending on what tradition you practice, Akemashita Omedeto Gozaimasu, or Shinyan Kwaila, and may you all have a happy and wonderful new year.